Well, let's pray. And may my words and our attention be now and always acceptable to you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 19th of September last year, probably you with us uh, watched the funeral service of Her Majesty the Queen. Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, preached. The service reflected uh, the Queen's commitment, the choice of Bible readings, hymns, and the sermon. However, one sentence in the sermon troubled me. The Archbishop to a worldwide audience said this, we will all face the merciful judgment of God. And I thought, will we? Uh, is that Paul's point here? Oh, we will all certainly face the judgment of God, but will it be a merciful judgment of God which we face? Now, the writer to the Hebrews said it's appointed for us all to die and to face the judgment. The Apostle Paul said that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Lord Jesus himself talked about the certainty of judgment. You remember the division between the sheep and the goats. And yet when I look at each of those descriptions and all the other descriptions of judgment day in the Bible, I do not find the adjective merciful. Can we expect the judge to be merciful? Go to the judge. Abraham, remember way back in Genesis, said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, our judges here have every right to be merciful as long as they justify the application of mercy. What mercy is just withholding punishment that is deserved. And a judge might say, well, I withhold, even though you've earned that punishment, in view of these circumstances, I withhold the judgment that you deserve. On judgment day, will God be merciful? Will God be merciful to Hitler? Will God be merciful to Stalin or Pol Pot? Will God be merciful to Ivan Milat? Will God be merciful to Bernie Madoff, who ripped off millions with his Ponzi scheme? Will God be merciful to you? Will God be merciful to me? Will God's exercise of mercy be related to the degree of our evil? What degree of evil warrants mercy? It's vital that we be clear because this is a tribunal that we are going to all appear before. And if what the Archbishop has said is true, well, then we've got nothing to worry about because it's going to be a merciful judgment for us all. Will we have punishment deserved withheld from us? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in this long reading. Thanks, Jess, for reading it. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 6. And if you're in the habit of marking pew Bibles, that's okay in this church. Chapter 2, well, I say it's okay in this church. No one else does. But uh, I don't know if they do or not. But look at what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. So God's judgment notice is individual, each person, but it is universal, each person and every person, and it is not based on intention or resolution, but it's based on works according to what they have done. So therefore, this judgment is universal, individual, it's works-based, it's judgment without bias. Look down to verse 11. God is not a judge who plays favourites. I can't turn up and say, oh, you know me, let, let me go. No, 
And Paul sets it out here very clearly, doesn't he? Look at verse 7. If there are those who persistently do good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. But verse 8, there are those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil. There will be wrath, anger, trouble and distress. Verse 10, if you do good, there will be glory, honour and peace because God is just. Judgment will be based on what you do. Now, the problem is this whole section is all about how we fall short of God's standards and none of us can fit the category of verse 7 and verse 10. I look at verse 7 and verse 10 and I think, well, my performance in any week is patchy. Sometimes I'm good. Sometimes I seek honour and immortality. And yet it's patchy. Sometimes I'm self-seeking and I'm truth-rejecting. But God is just and he is holy. For him, it's 100% pass mark. That's my problem. So the judgment of God will be just for Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Bernie Madoff, Ivan Milat, you and me. Well, what do we do about that? Well, Paul in this reading confronts three attitudes Look at the first there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and it is the self-righteous person who passes judgment on the wicked doers of chapter (laughs) 1. All those things in chapter 1 that are mentioned there that you might have seen last night on your TV screens. We're not like that, are we? We don't do those sorts of things. Look at verse 1. You pass judgment. You judge another. You pass judgment. You're passing judgment on them. And yet here's the issue, verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? In fact, he goes on in verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Well, look at me. Life's pretty good for me. That's God's seal of approval on my lifestyle, they're saying. No, the Apostle Paul says, do you realise that God's kindness and patience with you in order to lead you to repentance? I remember one time preaching in a very traditional Presbyterian church and I preached on the need for repentance. And I spoke to the minister later. He said, you know what they said? One lady said it was like an invasion of the Baptists today. He spoke on a need for repent. I said, of course it is, yes. Presbyterians don't need to repent. Uh, Baptists do certainly, don't they? (laughs) Of course they do. But you see, look at verse 5. Because they don't repent, because of your stubbornness, the word is sclerosis, hardening of the arteries, And your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The plaque is building up. An ongoing non-repentance, pointing the finger at those other awful people. It's not going to matter two hoots. The self-righteous moralist who is not penitent will be condemned. I will be condemned. Now, secondly, uh, this is not in your notes, but uh, have a look there. The second category, he goes on in verses 12 and 16. What about those who've never heard of Jesus, those who've never heard the Ten Commandments, the unreached? Well, he says, Paul says here, verse 12, he says, you can be sure that God will not judge them on the basis of what they did not have. He said, if they sin apart from the law, then they'll perish apart from the law. If they sin under the law, then they'll be judged by the law. So why not leave them alone? Why send missionaries to them? 
Now, the apostle says in verse 16 that this is what he's talking about. This will take place. We'll look at what will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. God will judge all our secrets on that day. And what about the unreached? What will it be like for them? Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences bear witness. Their thoughts sometimes accuse them because they did not do what was right and at other times even defend them. So I take the Ten Commandments to the unreached and they'll be judged on the basis of the Ten Commandments because that's what they knew. I take the gospel to the unreached and they'll be judged on the basis of whether they accepted or rejected the gospel because that's what they knew. But you see, if I leave them alone, they'll be judged on the basis of a conscience which accuses them, sometimes excuses them, but you'll have an accusative conscience. And the only hope for such people, though Paul doesn't go into this, is that they receive the gospel of Jesus and they respond to Jesus and receive Jesus. But the unreached as they are, the ignorant as they are, notice they're going to be short of God's standard because their conscience will accuse them. Now, the third attitude Paul comes to is there in chapter 2, verse 17. He's probably been referring to a Jewish attitude up to this point, but now he is specific. He says, to you, you call yourself a Jew. And notice in verse 19, he uses categories that they refer to them. Obviously, you have a guide to the blind. You see yourself an instructor of the foolish, verse 20, a teacher of children. You knew... And you taught others, but here's the question for you, verse 21. Did you teach yourself? Are you like the moralist, that you don't live up to your own standards? Verse 23, you who boast in the Lord, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, if this people represent their God, they are such hypocrites, we don't want to know their God because he must be a hypocritical God. And, and don't come back to me and say, well, I've got circumcision. I've got a mark in the flesh. And you can't take that away from me. Now look at what the Apostle Paul says. You cannot reverse circumcision. Well, let me tell you, verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, that is circumcised physically, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Oh, you may be circumcised in the flesh. That's the covenant sign. But it does not indicate a change, a transformed new heart. And the sign without the reality means nothing. You will not find refuge under the mark of circumcision. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in your church membership. Don't trust in the Lord's Supper unless all of these things are indicative of a real inner change, a new life. And so Paul says, look at your performance of the law. You make the great claims and don't come to me and say circumcision is meaningful about anything if it doesn't indicate a new life. Well, as Beth has already indicated, here are three attitudes, aren't they? I can find them all in my coffee group. I can find them all if I go door knocking. You'll find the person who says, I'm all right, thanks, I'm a good person. I'm not like those other people. I just live and uh, love my neighbour as myself. I'll be all right, thanks very much. 
or you find the person, I don't, want, I, I don't know, I find the less I know, the better I'm off, so don't tell me, I don't want to know. And then you find the person who says, oh, I know, I'm safe. One bloke said to me, I went to Sunday school, I know all about Jesus, Joseph and Mary, yeah, I've got my certificate, that's fine. I know, leave me alone. I'm good, I'm ignorant, I know. And Paul says there is no refuge there because you do not live up to your own standards. You have an accusative conscience and you do not live consistently with your knowledge. I was converted in 1967. In 1968, Billy Graham came to Sydney for two weeks and I went to every meeting. The thing that struck me about Billy Graham's preaching is that he would hold up a black Bible and say, the Bible says. Then the other thing that struck me is he would ask himself a question, the very question on my mind, but Billy, you may ask. And he'd ask himself the question. He'd dialogue with himself and I didn't have to interrupt him. And you're going to see that throughout Romans, Paul does exactly that. But Paul, you may ask. And that's what he does in chapter 3, verse 1. Do I hear some of you say, well, look, we've gone out and we've got ourselves circumcised. And we're Jews. We're following the law. What advantage then is there in being a Jew if God's not going to be biased in our favour? And Paul says, well, there are many advantages in being a Jew. But verse 2, he names only one that God revealed himself through creation to all humanity. He said that in chapter 1. But to Israel, to you, his people, he spoke words. You have the direct revelation of God, he says, entrusted with the very words of God. What a great advantage you have. Well, they say, verse 3, well, that's okay. Look at the way they wriggle here and they bring up their objections. If we are hypocritical and we are faithless, there's no excuse for God to be faithless. He can't punish us because we're in covenant with him. And look at what Paul does in verse 4. He quotes David, who's committed adultery with Bathsheba, and God punishes David. Now, they'd say, well, God can't be faithful and punish his own people, can he? Yes, he can. God is true to his covenant promises and his covenant threats. And when God blesses his people, he's being faithful. And when he punishes his people, he is also being faithful. And they say, wait on, verse 5. If we are unrighteous, then doesn't that just elevate the fact that God is righteous by contrast with us? If you go and give someone a diamond ring, you very rarely give them the diamond ring. You generally give them the diamond ring in a box with black, this is a hint for some of you guys, with, uh, with black velvet in the background and it brings out the luster of the diamond. What do they say? Oh, we're sinful. But whenever we sin, that's all right because people say, oh, well, it just shows by contrast that God is not sinful. So how can he punish us every time we sin because we're simply showing up his faithfulness and his sinlessness? Paul says in verse 6, if that were the case, God could never judge because all sin would just elevate his holiness and he will judge. And look at how he finishes in verse 8. Let us do evil, sin, that good may result, that God may be elevated. Their condemnation is just. Dear friends, every question is anticipated. Every category is covered. God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
Last week, I uh, spoke about Thomas Sowell. He's an economist who I find is just terrific. There are not too many economists you think are just terrific, but Thomas Sowell in the United States is just terrific. Google him, it's worthwhile. This is what Thomas Sowell said. When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell people what they want to hear. It is appointed for all of us to die and after that comes the judgment. That's what you need to hear. That's what I need to hear. The just, right judgment of God based on your works to every person. This past couple of weeks in our apartments, a man has died. And so I go to the pool most mornings. There's a lady in there and we got talking about this. And I told her that she needs to be ready. Well, how can you be ready? Judgment is coming. How can you be ready? My news agent, the lady who makes my coffee, the neighbour downstairs. I don't want anyone to turn up on judgment day and they're standing before the judgment seat of Christ and they point around to me and say, you never told me. When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. One time we were on our way up to Weewar for Good Friday Easter services. It was Wednesday night. We stayed in the Hunter Valley. Our hostess was looking after us the next morning, the Thursday before Good Friday. She knew what we were going to do and she said, I just try to be good. I just want to be good, a good neighbour to people. And the question was asked, well, why do you think Easter? Why did Jesus come? if we could have made it just by being good. As one prominent media uh, commentator says, when anybody asks me if I'm a Christian, I say, I'm trying. Is that what Christianity is about? God sends his priceless, precious son. And do you think that when you turn up before the judgment seat, he'll commend you for your record? Your record is your problem. And he'll say, what have you done with my priceless, precious gift, my son Jesus? Oh, I just thought if I loved my neighbour, that'd be enough. He is a just judge. But dear friends, today he offers mercy. But on judgment day, judgment will be applied. My record, my ignorance, my knowledge, no refuge. He will render to each person according to his works. Well, that's what it's like. This week, last week, Paul said this. This week, Paul's saying exactly the same thing. Next week, there's no relief because he's going to be saying the same thing. He wants us to know of our great need so that we can understand the greatness of the gospel. And it's all summed up in that wonderful hymn, that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, naked turn to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me safe or I die. Paul says, chapter 3, verse 23 is your key verse. There is your central thesis of this whole first section of Romans. All, that is you, that is me, all of us have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ he alone can save you because then judgment will be just and right. I was a student at Moore College from 1973 to 1975 
1973, they had us read a book on evangelism in the early church. And it was about how Christians uh, used to put signs up, gospel signs around the place. And so we started to put signs up in our windows. And in those days, Moore College had a big terrace house looking down City Road, and there were cars and cars coming back, peak hour in the afternoon, up that City Road. And this terrace wall was just blank. And so the students said, we should put a big sign up there. So we went to our principal, D.B. Knox. Dr. Knox, would you mind if we put a sign up? He said, I'll pay for the paint, but I'll have the last word on what the sign says. (laughs) If you want to be safe. And the sign went up, paid for by the college. God has fixed the judgment day. Flee to Jesus. He will save you. Today is the day of opportunity. Come to him now, because when judgment comes, it will be individual, universal, based on works. His or yours.